Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1260. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through uh, this short New Testament book, and we've come to the final chapter this morning, and I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, standing in prayer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll read the first five verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And this is what the Word of God says. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The final chapter of 2 Thessalonians has numerous similarities to the closing section of the book of 1 Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And here in this final chapter, we once again encounter the heartfelt words of a shepherd for his dearly loved flock. In this final section of 2 Thessalonians, the theme of prayer continues. Paul has just concluded his major doctrinal teaching of the letter with a command for the Thessalonian believers to stand firm and with a prayer for comfort, hope, and the establishment of the Thessalonians' ministry until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. At the beginning of this last chapter, Paul continues his challenge to remain standing by asking for prayer by reminding the Thessalonians of God's provision and by praying for his beloved congregation to persevere to the end. In this book, Paul is writing from Corinth and he's in the midst of a very challenging season of ministry. And as a result, he understood the direct relationship between praying and standing firm in and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, in these verses, Paul magnifies the importance of both the shepherd and the sheep, the pastor and his people, to stand united in prayer until Jesus returns. Now, this is a very practical section of Scripture. It's not deep. But it's helpful, and it's important, and I'm going to give you all kinds of reminders and challenges to practically live out these verses this morning. So let's look, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, at the request for prayer. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. 
And you'll notice that he begins verse 1 with the word finally. And yet, if you look at your Bible, he will speak for or write for 16 more verses after verse number 1 and the word finally. He is a typical preacher. <laughs> this word finally signals the conclusion of the letter even though Paul is not finished instructing this church. This word finally, while it signals to us that Paul's words to this dearly loved church is coming to an end, it literally means for the rest or besides that. And so what he is doing is making a clear transition in the letter. He has been speaking about in time events and now he switches gears in this last chapter and he's going to deal with some very practical matters regarding this local church. And so with this word finally, Paul was saying, in addition to all of my previous instruction, there is one more matter I need to address. But before I do that, notice what he says in verse 1. Brothers, pray for us. And with the use of the word brothers, he's reminding us that he's writing to the church and he is calling the church to action and he is specifically calling the church to prayer. The word prayer that he uses there is emphatic. He is giving great emphasis to what he is asking the church to do on his behalf. And it is in present tense language, which means literally pray continually, church, or make prayer a constant pattern of your lives, church. Pray continually for us. Paul's plea for prayer for himself and his associates uses the same terminology that he used at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 25, he simply said this to the church, Brothers, pray for us. And with these few simple words, with this very simple request for prayer, Paul is admitting his weakness, his dependence upon God, and his need for other Christians. You see, brothers and sisters, prayer is a barometer of your dependence upon the Lord. Prayer is a barometer of my dependence upon the Lord. When you are prayerless in your life, you are not depending upon God. You are depending upon yourself. And the more prayerful you are in your life, the less dependent you are on you and the more dependent you are upon God. Prayer is a barometer for your life of how dependent you are upon the Lord. And Paul's writings, not only here in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but in all of his letters, reveal that he was so dependent upon the Lord that he lived in a continual state of prayer. And not only did he live in a constant continual state of prayer. He continually asked the churches that he wrote to to live in a continual state of prayer. Paul considered prayer as a means by which every single member of the church could participate 
in his ministry. Did you catch that? I'm going to say it again just in case you missed it. Because it's really important. And if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, hear this sentence. Paul considered prayer as a means by which every single person in the church could participate in his ministry. And he frequently asked for prayers that his ministry would be accomplished with power for the glory of God and that all those obstacles that were in his way would be removed so that he could minister effectively. And so he pleads with this church to pray for him. I love what John MacArthur wrote about this section. It is so helpful and practical. And this is what he wrote. Even with his influence, success, respect, and fame, this request demonstrated Paul's meekness and humility. The man who was arguably the strongest of spiritual leaders requested prayer from new believers. The spiritually mature asking for prayer from new believers. It also showed Paul's confidence in the inherent power of prayer. Paul's request is a good reminder that even the newest of believers have the privilege in the spirit through prayer of participating in the release of God's power on behalf of the strongest, most experienced servants and saints of God. End quote. The urgency, the desperate need for prayer. Paul's request for prayer is a reminder to every single one of us as believers that we never arrive at a place in our Christian life and ministry where we no longer need people to pray for us. Prayer, brothers and sisters, will remain essential in your life until you are in glory. And so it's emphatic. It's present tense. There's a sense of urgency about this prayer. And if you'll notice in verses 1 and 2, he makes two requests that they pray for. In verse number 1, he asks for prayer for progress. Look at what he wrote. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He's praying and asking the church to pray for the progress of the ministry of the word of God. And he uses the phrase speed ahead. It literally means to speed on. To make progress. It's athletic language. That of a runner running in a race. Moving to the finish line. Paul refers here in this verse to Psalm 147 in verse 15. And this is what the psalmist writes about the word of God speeding ahead in Psalm 147 verse 15. He sends out his command to the earth and his word runs swiftly. Listen to that. Only the psalmist could give us a word picture like that. His word runs swiftly. God sends out his command over the earth 
and the words of his command, his very word runs swiftly over all the earth. And that is essentially what Paul is asking the church to pray for. That every time that he stands up to preach and proclaim the gospel, and as he speaks the very words of life, the very word of God, the Spirit of God would take the word of God and it would run swiftly across the land. That it would make progress. It's exactly how Luke described the advance of the gospel in Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And Paul is asking for the church to pray that the word of God would increase. That the word of God would prevail mightily. That in days in which you and I are living where there is a famine in the land for the preaching and the hearing of the word of God, the true, unadulterated word of God, that the church would pray that the word of God would prevail mightily over the land, that it would rush throughout the nations unhindered, no obstacles in its way, that it would advance and that the kingdom of God would come. That's what he's praying. Church, pray for me and pray for the advancement of the word. But now notice carefully in his prayer in verse number one that the proclamation of the word of God widely and rapidly doesn't guarantee its reception. And so Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray that the word of God would be honored by every single person who hears it. The word honored is emphatic, just like the phrase speed rapidly. The word honored is present tense language, continual language, that the word of God would continually be honored as it is continually spreading rapidly. And this word is frequently translated to be glorified. And so Paul is asking the church not only to pray that the word of God would prevail mightily over the land and would make great progress, but that everywhere it's proclaimed and everywhere it's heard, those who hear it would receive it and would honor it and would glorify God for it and welcome it into their lives. And that welcome of the word of God in their lives would lead to their praise and to their worship of God. That people, when they're confronted with the word of God, would bow before it in submission. They would surrender to the word of God. They would honor God in his word and give proper respect for his saving truth. Paul's request for the word to be honored describes the response of the Gentiles in the book of Acts when they heard that the gospel was for them. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, this is what Luke writes, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you see that picture, friends? These Gentiles heard the gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. And the moment they heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying God for his word. And here we are in America, in our modern society, with Bibles all over the place with all kinds of podcasts and YouTube, and we can get the word of God at one click. And we take it all for granted. 
And how often, how often do we really honor it and glorify God for his word, his life-giving word that gives truth to our souls, his word of truth that brings salvation to us? How often do we take it for granted? Do you take it for granted this morning that you'd show up in this place and you knew you just knew you were going to hear the word. There's churches gathered all over the place this morning who will not hear the word. It's to be honored. Notice also, to add even more specificity to his prayer request, he says that it would be honored as it happened among you. And so he was asking for the Thessalonians to pray that the people that he preached to would honor and receive the word the way they honored and received the word when he preached to them. Do you remember how they responded when he preached to them? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul describes how they responded to the word when they heard it. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. That's how they received it. And Paul says, just the way you received it, would you pray that others would receive it that way? Would you pray Let's just get specific that the Corinthians would hear it the way that you heard it. They're messed up. Pray that they'll hear it and receive it that way. John Piper describes the important link between preaching and prayer, between missions and prayer. And this is how he describes it. Prayer is the walkie-talkie of the church on the battlefield of the world in the service of the word. It is not a domestic intercom to increase the comfort of the saints. It is for those on active duty. And in their hands, it proves the supremacy of God in the pursuit of the nations. When mission moves forward by prayer, it magnifies the power of God. And when it moves by human management, it magnifies man. So which would you rather depend on? The power of God or the power of man? Brothers, pray for us. That the word would make progress and it would be honored among the nations. Ian Bounds is one of my favorite authors on prayer. And if you've never read any of his work, you are missing out on some of the greatest writings that have ever been penned on prayer. He's most noted for a little small volume called The Pastor in Prayer. And if you ever want to be convicted intentionally, pick up that volume, read it, and instead of applying it to the life of the pastor, apply it to your life and your life of prayer. And this is what he wrote about prayer and preaching. Without prayer, the gospel can neither be preached effectively, promulgated faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in the life. 
And for the very simple reason that by leaving prayer out of the catalog of religious duties, we leave God out. Did you hear that? By leaving prayer out, you leave God out. And his work cannot progress without him. No prayer, no God. No progress, no advancement for the gospel. I'm going to read you one more quote by a modern author, Richard Phillips. In his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, this is what he said about the relationship between prayer and preaching and the church and praying. I wonder whether we realize today how important prayer is to the preaching of the gospel in the church. Ours is a generation that is captivated by celebrity preachers and the display of God's gifts and the ministry of successful pastors. Did you hear that? He's right on the mark. Yet there is no minister of God's word, however gifted, who, like the Apostle Paul, does not need to rely utterly on the prayers of believers to empower his message. Every minister who longs to follow Paul in being used by God for the salvation of many will echo his heartfelt plea. Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And so I say to you this morning, church, with all the sincerity and desperation of my heart, brothers and sisters, pray for me. Pray for us. Pray for our church. That the word of God would go forth and be honored from this place. Pray for this church. It's a desperate need. When you are prayed up and you're preaching in the Spirit of God, I'm just telling you by experience, when you stand behind this sacred desk, 50 minutes feels like five. But when you're not prayed up and you're not in the Spirit of God, five minutes feels like 50. And every single time the church gathers, there are broken hearts on all these pews. There's broken marriages, there's broken families, there's broken relationships between parents and their children. There's sickness, there's emotional trauma. Every single pew is representing a broken heart this morning. And the church must pray for the word of God to be received and go forth and honored because that's when healing will begin. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God for your marriage. It's the power of God for your parenting. It's the power of God for your work. It's the power of God for your very life. So brothers, sisters, pray. Pray that it would be honored. Pray that hearts of stone would be smashed by the hammer of God's word. And hearts of flesh would prevail. Pray that stubborn wills would be crushed under the Spirit of God. And brokenness and humility would result. And we would all bow before this sovereign King. Brothers, pray for us. Well, that was just the first request. Verse number two is the second one. And he prays for protection. Notice what he said, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. And Paul's reminding the church, and he's reminding you and me, that just as the Spirit uses dedicated people to share the Word of God, Satan uses wicked people to stop the Word of God. 
So he asked the church to pray for protection. And notice how he describes these obstacles, these human obstacles to the progress of the gospel. They're wicked and they're evil. Uh, These are are strong words that Paul employs in this verse. The word wicked means out of place, improper, perverse, unreasonable, wrongheaded. Here's my favorite definition that I came across as I was studying the word. Morally insane. They're wicked. They're morally insane. They've lost their minds morally. And he describes them as evil. As those who actively pursue evil. Adam Clark in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians defines evil this way. He says it's disorderly, it's unmanageable, it's persons out of their place, under no discipline, regardless of law and restraint, and ever acting agreeably to the disorderly and unreasonable impulses of their own minds. Here's how I would say it. They are out of control in wickedness, in hatred of God and his word and the things of God. And notice in verse 2, Paul gives the reason for their opposition. They don't have faith. And Paul understood what he was talking about, didn't he? He was a man who before he met Christ on the Damascus Road stood in direct opposition to the progress of the Word of God. He is the man who witnessed the death of Stephen. He is the man who understood that the wicked and the evil of the world will go to great lengths to stop the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he prayed that the church would pray for his protection so that he could preach with boldness and courage and be unhindered in his delivering of the word of God. And what he asked the church to pray for in verse 2 is directly connected to what he asked them to pray for in verse 1. Pray for the progress of the word of God. Pray that it would be honored. And pray that God would protect me from the evil and the wicked forces that are trying to stand in the way of the preaching of the gospel. He wasn't concerned about self-preservation or personal comfort. He was concerned that the word of God would be advanced. And so he prays. And asks the church to pray that God would protect him in his service. So how are we to think about this? Well, I have some thoughts. Number one, when another brother or sister in Christ requests prayer from you, do you actually pray? In a few minutes, this service is going to be over. And people are going to gather together and catch up with one another and visit one another. And by the way, this is free in parentheses. If you rush out the door and you miss out on that, you're missing out on one of the greatest gifts that God has given you through the church. The fellowship of the saints and brothers and sisters. McDonald's will wait for you. You're going back out into the world. And before you go back out into the world, you need the reservoir of grace that is here. When will you realize that? Into parentheses, moving on, stay off that rabbit trail. And so somebody will inevitably say, would you pray for me about this? And the question is, will you say, yes, I'll pray for you and forget about it? Or will you right there in that very moment say, let's pray right now? Do you know what I've learned? If I say I'll pray for it, 
and I don't write it down, and I don't pray right in that moment, I forget. It's called middle age. You forget, right? So what better time to pray than right there in that moment? So do you pray, or do you just say that you'll pray and then forget? What do you think would happen in the person's life who has been vulnerable before you and asked you to pray? How do you think they might leave being in church today after their brother or their sister in Christ prayed for them? So that's one thing to think about. Now, if that weren't enough, let me give you application number two. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 that as believers, we should long for and love the appearing of Christ. And so in your longing for and loving of the appearing of Christ, do you pray for the advancement of the gospel? Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the nations and then the end will come. So when you are longing for and loving the appearing of Christ, do you match that longing and that love with a conscientious effort of prayer that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would advance to all the nations and reach every tribe, language, and people group? Do you pray specifically that way for the advance of the gospel? Application number three. Do you pray for your pastor and the other elders. I live with him. I know he needs prayer. And if you don't believe him, believe his wife. She lives with him. She'll tell you that he needs prayer. And if you don't believe her, ask his children. They'll tell you he needs lots of prayer. Lots of prayer. Do you know one of the difficult, I'm just revealing the curtain for you to help you practically, church. Do you want to know one of the most difficult days of the week in the life of the pastor? Saturday. If there's going to be a fight in the home, you know when it's going to happen? Saturday. And it's either going to happen first thing Saturday, so it drags the whole day down into the gutter, or it's going to happen at the end of the day, so it bleeds over into Sunday. And either way, Sunday is affected. And what other way to hurt the advance of the gospel, what other way to hurt the church than to attack the pastor? And so I'm just being selfish this morning and telling you, please pray. Pray. And, and specifically, pray for those who be in attendance like this very moment, do, do you realize that on a sermon on prayer and preaching and the relationship of prayer and preaching together and the importance of all of that, that in this room, this very moment, the Spirit of God is using the Word of God to bring to bear on the souls of the people and is convicting people and drawing them to himself. This very moment, even in a sermon like this. Do you realize that? So, so do, you, do you pray for the people that are actually going to be sitting in the pew? That God would remove the blinders of their eyes and they would hear and see and receive the truth. That they would see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and they would be drawn to him and that there would be true life change. Do you pray for the broken hearts and the needs of the people that will be in attendance? Do you pray for the word of God to speed ahead in the church? 
that it would speed ahead in our church family and bleed out into the community and then spread out into the community. 200 of us are going to leave and go out into the world, and we got all kinds of relationships out there. Do you pray that the word of God would advance as we scatter? That's the purpose. Do you pray that way? Do you pray for an eager reception for the word of God from you before you come to church? For your spouse? For your children? Do you pray that your kids sitting under the preaching of the word of God would be convicted of their sin and drawn to Christ? Friends, God saves. God honors the preaching of his word. God changes lives through the preaching of his word. So brothers, sisters, church, pray for us. Well, he not only made a request for prayer, he reminded the Thessalonians of God's provision. And relax, point number one was the longest. Okay? Verses three and four, the reminder of God's provision. I want you to see this because you and I need to be reminded of this this morning in the days in which we're living. Look at what he writes, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. If that's all he said, that was enough. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. In verse 3, a shift takes place in the text as Paul moves from his concerns of verses 1 and 2 to his concerns for the church. This transition in the text is linked in two ways. It's linked by the change in language from us in verses 1 and 2 to you in verses 3 and 4. And it's also linked in the contrasting language found at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Look at how Paul plays on words. The end of verse 2, for not all have faith. And at the beginning of verse 3, and the Lord is faithful. And so there's a transition taking place here. And Paul is showing us that God's faithfulness stands in monumental contrast to the faithlessness of wicked and evil men. And in verse 3, Paul tells the Thessalonians how God will express his faithfulness to them. Do you see what he says? He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Church, pray for us. And I want to remind you that while you are praying, that God is faithful. And he will establish you. He will support you. He will strengthen you. And he will guard you against the forces of wickedness and evil that come straight from the evil one or the devil. It's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah reminded the people of in his day of devastation. You know, you know the passage. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. And this is what he reminded them of. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is not just faithful. God is great in faithfulness. And every single morning that you and I wake up, 
we wake up to new mercies, new grace, a new round of faithfulness from our sovereign God and King. He is faithful. And you know how Jeremiah responds to the faithfulness of God that he's reminding the people of in his day? Listen to verse 24. The Lord is my portion, and I will hope in him. And you know what he says there? When he says, the Lord is my portion, this is exactly what the text says. Says my soul. (laughs) Now, don't miss this. What's Jeremiah doing? He's talking to himself. Right? You think if you talk to yourself, you're crazy. But the Bible says that there are times in your Christian life when you actually need to talk to yourself. And it's in those times when you're talking to yourself in the Christian life, you need to say things like this from your soul. The Lord is great. The Lord is great in faithfulness. And this morning, even though it seems like my world is falling apart, new mercies, new grace, that's how faithful he is. And tonight when I lay my head down on the pillow and I can't control all the things that are going to happen and I'm going to rest. Did you ever think about this? When you lay your head on the pillow, you're resting your soul and your life in God's hands for the next so many hours, however long you sleep. And so you're saying, God, you're faithful. If I'm going to make it through the night, it's going to be your faithfulness that's going to wake me up in the morning. And you got to tell your soul some of these things on the hard days. And he's reminding them of this truth, that God will establish and strengthen you on the inside, and he will guard you on the outside because he is great in his faithfulness to you. Do you know what Paul reminded them of is the exact same thing that Jesus prayed for every believer before he went to the cross? John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What Jesus prayed for, Paul reminded them of, that God would be faithful to establish them and to guard them and to keep them. So, my dear brother and sister, my dearly beloved church family, When you and I face attacks by the enemies of the truth, and we will, we need to remind ourselves that God is faithful. We need to remind ourselves that we can depend upon Him. We need to remind ourselves that He will strengthen us on the inside and protect us on the outside. We need to remind ourselves that He will never go back on His promises. He will never leave us, and He will never forsake us. We need to remind ourselves of these truths. And Paul knew that through all changing seasons in life and ministry, the Lord was magnificently faithful, and he would never let him down. And do you know that some of the very last words that the Apostle Paul ever penned in the last book that he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the book of 2 Timothy, he testified to this very truth. Here he was in a cell getting ready to give up his life for the gospel. And this is what he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Now listen to verse 17. All of his friends have left him. Now listen to verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. And strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Would you remember that truth this morning, friends? The Lord will stand with you. He's faithful. And Paul was confident. Not in the Thessalonians. Look at verse 4. He wasn't confident in the Thessalonians. His confidence was in the Lord. That's how sure he was that God would be faithful to establish and guard them. And friends, in these days, that's where your confidence needs to be. That's where my confidence needs to be. It needs to be in the Lord. Because confidence in the Lord leads to confidence and faithfulness in the church. Did you hear that? Confidence in the Lord leads to confidence and faithfulness in the church. So do you have this kind of confidence in the Lord? Do you believe he's faithful? Do you believe he's been faithful to you in the past? Do you believe he's currently being faithful to you this very moment? Do you believe that he'll be faithful to you in the future? Do you believe that if everyone walks out on you, the Lord will stand by you, the Lord will strengthen you, the Lord will keep you so that you can obey? And if you believe these truths that God is faithful, do you live your life according to this belief? Well, there was a request for prayer. There was a reminder of God's provision. And there was a request for perseverance. Look at how he concludes this passage in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Can you think of a better reminder to persevere than the fact that God is faithful? He's so faithful that he'll direct you to his love and to the steadfastness of Christ, the patient endurance of Christ. Friends, you're going to stand firm in the Lord. You're going to stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to need to rest in the love of God for you. And you're going to need to rest in the example of the endurance, the patient endurance of Christ. God has shown you his love for you. The Bible says he demonstrated it to you by sending his son to die for you. And so if you ever wonder, no matter what's going on in your life, whether or not God loves you, all you have to do is look to the cross. Because there on the cross, God demonstrated his love. But not only did God demonstrate his love on the cross, there on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated as an example to you and me his patient endurance. His steadfastness, as the text says. The writer of Hebrews describes it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was Christ's steadfastness? He lived a perfect, sinless life on your behalf, a life that you could never live, a life that I could never live. He was wrongly accused, wrongly arrested. He was beaten within an inch of his life by Roman soldiers. His back was ripped and mangled to pieces. And then an old, splintery, wooden crossbeam was laid across his open back. And he marched to the place where he would hang on that cross. And when he got to the cross, they nailed his hands and his feet to that wood. And they raised it up into the air and thumped it into the ground. And in the moment that that thump of the cross went into the ground, his whole body went into shock and pain. They pierced him in his side. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. They gambled for his clothes. And the whole time, Jesus hung there for the joy that was set before him and endured with patience and faithfulness everything that was laid upon him in that moment. And do you know what the joy was that was in his mind as he hung there on the cross? You. Every single soul that he died and bought for salvation. They were on his mind as he endured. Then they took him down. They put him in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave. As the writer of Hebrews says, he ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. Because the work is done. Your sin has been forgiven. The price of your sin has been paid for. You have freedom and redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why he's the author and the perfecter and the example of faith. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says you look to him for your endurance. You look to him for your perseverance. You look to him for your salvation. And one day, he's going to get up out of that seat. And he's going to split the eastern sky. And he's going to come back to rule and reign forevermore. He is the victorious king. The example of steadfastness and perseverance for you. So, dear brother and sister, would you pray? Would you pray that the gospel would spread rapidly? Would you pray that it would be honored and glorified and God would be honored and glorified at its proclamation? Would you remember on your worst day in this life, God is faithful to you and he will remain faithful to you to the very end. And as you rest in his faithfulness, would you have confidence in him that you've been drawn into his love and you have the example of Christ and what it looks like to run to the end. Would you, church, stand firm in prayer with your pastor?
And would you, pastor, stand firm in prayer with your church? Let's pray.